The personal is always political and the political is always personal. You're tuned in to Poppin' Policies with R. Jordan Davis. We have two guests joining us in the Situation Room today to talk about gentrification and housing inequality. I'll go ahead and introduce them without any delay. We have Jamal in the building. He's a data scientist and grassroots organizer. He's dedicated to creating systemic change for the lives of historically disenfranchised communities by addressing root causes of issues. He is a member of Community Movement Builders, an organization based in the Pittsburgh community of Atlanta, Georgia. CMB focuses on Black liberation. Their current projects include anti-gentrification organizing, running several cooperative businesses to strengthen the neighborhood economically, and maintaining a neighborhood urban garden. Our second guest is Salome. She is focused on creating sustainable communities and dismantling systemic oppressions that lead to unjust lives. She currently works in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Atlanta to stop gentrification, in addition to organizing on the issues of reproductive health, rights, and justice. I am so excited about the conversation that we will have today. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, please welcome Jamal and Salome to the Situation Room. So guys, can we talk about the historical situations or historical events that have kind of disenfranchised Black people since America's inception, specifically talking about um, 40 acres and a mule and how we never really got that and how that started this kind of snowball effect of housing inequality and uh, gentrification, modern day gentrification for African Americans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is Jamal. Thank you so much for having uh, us on the podcast uh, and really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I guess you want me to start? You can start. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the United States of America has a long history of <clears throat> excluding people in general, but specifically black folks from uh, owning property and being able to uh, maintain themselves in that respect. I think it's also important if we're going to be talking about housing rights um, and property rights is to uh, go back to part of the reason for why uh, when, we talk, when people think about liberation, when people think about uh, being able to be self-sustainable, uh, in the United States, a lot of historically it has come down to land ownership. Right, right. Both being a full, like, liberated person means that you own land being that's how they kind of that's how they conceptualize being a whole person somebody that, that owns land okay. and so historically you know at the beginning we were well, after we were uh you know became we were freed from slavery black folks were freed from slavery uh we were promised 40 acres of mule, right yeah. that didn't happen and that couldn't have happened because uh, the United States still did not want to recognize black people as being few, full human beings, right? And so um, that, and then through that, from that point forward, that started the cycle of dehumanizing black folks, um, and it continued in a way that um, 
in in every in in different periods of time, right? So yeah. you think about forty acres of mule that didn't happen. You think about uh, after uh, GI Bill when, when when folks were supposed to be getting more lands uh, from coming back from soldiers coming back from war, supposed to be given land. Black folks who fought in wars too weren't didn't get those same rights because black people still weren't seen as full humans, right? Yeah. And you think about redlining, same type of issue. And you think about um, and, and you think about the housing mortgage crisis, how that was specifically targeted to people of color and specifically black black folks. Another way of being able to keep black people out of being able to own property and to be able to maintain their own livelihoods. And I think another core piece of that, right, when we talk about forty acres and a meal, it's also important to talk about the fact that we live in a colonial state. Um, we live in a country that was founded on genocide. We live on land that, you know, um, belongs to indigenous folks. Yes. And I think like the conversation about property and land must also include that um, as we talk about the ways in which um, we're unable to live our full lives and be able to have full access to um, having land and having property but also in that same respect it's more to recognize that we are having this conversation on colonized land um where there are indigenous people um and um yeah i think that's important yeah absolutely and so moving past you know post-slavery um and after reconstruction um the reconstruction period I know Jamal is uh, from my hometown, Birmingham. He was actually my big brother um, at our high school. Um, so that's how we are connected. But even looking at Birmingham, Jamal, like, can you speak about how government and policies, both of you actually, Saloma, you can definitely jump in, how policies have kind of shaped where people live and uh, where what side of town they can live in and things of that nature how have how have policies um impacted where people can live not even then but today how are policies affecting uh people's residents oh absolutely absolutely 100 that's like uh one of the biggest reasons like we talked about the civil rights movement and how it desegregated uh the united states but in every major city across the united states uh, when you look at homes and residential areas or where people live, it's still extraordinarily segregated, right? Yeah. We're talking about uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Birmingham in particular <clears throat> had a, um, and, I mean, I know you know this because, you know, we, we both grew up there, but um, Birmingham specifically, you know there's, there's certain pockets, like you look at Mountain Brook, you look at Vestavia Hills, you look at these other places that are in suburbia, that were literally created because black people, uh, they were created and then the prices for those houses were uh, uh, skyrocketed specifically to exclude yeah. black people from being able to get into those neighborhoods, right? You also think about different areas as well. This happens across the United States where uh, when black folks do move into a particular neighborhood, it might be uh, an integrated area for its period of time, but then after a while, the white folks that were living there move out and eventually it becomes a uh all black neighborhood and then also you know price prices fall down the uh, property is devaluated and all those things that um that it's like the reverse gentrification right <laughs> um <clears throat> and divestment from communities and of course the other, the other big piece about when we talk about 
uh, property value. When you talk about property value and owning property, is that once that property is devalued, what happens next? The school system goes down, right? Because Absolutely. the property taxes are going into school systems as well, which is uh, deteriorating a lot. A whole system, a system built around along property value and property um, uh, and property taxes. Yeah. Yeah, and additionally, especially um, in Pittsburgh and Southwest Atlanta as a whole, and like actually like all of Atlanta, especially even like Southeast Atlanta. Um, there's been a lot of policies like from the city council, et cetera, that really um, is in favor of these large developments coming in and quote unquote beautifying um, the city, starting even in Southeast Atlanta with Charlie Yates, right? The Charlie yeah. Yates golf course yeah. that led to extreme gentrification of Southeast Atlanta that now um, is not reflective of the communities that were here and actually like pushed so many people out and is pushing people like more and more south while others go north, um, like for example, to Gwinnett, et cetera. And so there's a lot of like policies in place and especially like, it's interesting, especially in a city like Atlanta where, you know, we have like so many folks who are black that are in those um, political positions, but yet are, are signing deals with these corporations that come in and um, displace folks from their homes and push right. people out of their communities um, for the purpose of beautification um, and development, as they call it. I think it's also like that's a that's a really great point because um, when you think about gentrification, I think a lot of people only look at the tail end of gentrification and yeah. think that's what gentrification is, right? Yeah. But um, I know with, within CMB Community Movement Builders, our organization. We have uh, spoken to uh, folks that were literally in those beginning meetings of uh, the city beginning to plan how they're going to change the entire city, right? Change the makeup of the entire city. Um, <clears throat> and with, with that being said, like, and it, it's, it's an orchestrated plan, right? It, it, it happens decades, the beginnings of gentrification happened decades ago, yeah. right? Um, and it's the same. It's the same. That's that's a story in Atlanta, and um, we've actually had mapped out how different areas of, of Atlanta began and how it's expanded uh, into southeast and then south, the south, and now it's more expanding into southwest mm-hmm. and then further, further south into basically where the airport is. Excuse me, as well. Um, and so, and it's only a natural progression because this was an orchestrated plan with deals and contracts that have been going on for for decades, right? It's the same phenomenon if you do research about gentrification across the United States about how they gentrified Brooklyn, for example. Mm. My dad um, was born and raised in Bed-Stuy. Um, and, uh, if, if you, and if you look at like the, the, some of the same politics within the areas at the, uh, back when he was there, mm-hmm. so at the beginning when he was there, he saw the beginning of gentrification, right? This was back in like the 80s. Or seventies and eighties, wow. and and now if you go to Bed Stuy, his same street, there are multi million dollar houses. When that was not the case back then at all. Wow. So I mean, it's, yeah. it's all part of like it, I think it's really important to to not just say gentrification is when you see a Starbucks pop up on the block. Mm-hmm. It happens before that. It happens in those closed door meetings. And if you want to look at like the map specifically for. Atlanta, um, you can go on our Facebook page um, at Community Movement Builders and you can find the full video of like the history of kind of how all of like 
how city council as well as um, these community um, community specific organization that cost money to even be part of um, help with orchestrating the gentrification um, of Atlanta. And I think, yeah, you're referring to the neighborhood association meetings, right? And so for those, I'm not sure who all is going to be is from Atlanta that's listening to this, but and who, how deep you are into the politics of how a lot of decisions are being made at the community level. Um, the community decisions about like an investor coming in and purchasing a lot of blocks, right? There was uh, institutions that were set up to be able to try to make it a more community-driven decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comes from neighborhood associations first. Uh, when a developer wants to purchase, let's let's say, uh, ten houses on, on on a particular street, right? Yeah. Um, they're supposed to be uh, going to the neighborhood association, where they give their blessing that this this investment can happen, which is then escalated to going over to the um, NPU meetings, which is a neighborhood planning unit. Mm-hmm. Planning unit meetings, they also are supposed to give their blessings. Those, a neighborhood planning unit is a consortium of several different neighborhoods. Um, so, like, let's say, like, NPUV is like uh, Mechanicsville, uh, Pittsburgh, several different other neighborhoods in southwest Atlanta. Um, and then from NPUV, that's when it goes to the city council where they can make the decision. It's supposed to be that it's gotten, it's gone through checks and balances through community members to be able to ensure that any investment or any things that are going to be happening in the community are in the, in the community's interest. However, um, what was discussed in that video on our, on our website and on our, on our Facebook page is that what started to happen is that as these various neighborhood associations um, and NPU meetings begin to uh, see the power that they have, they hold, they, um, a lot of them have started to constrain that power, right? Right. Uh, and Absolutely it's become less of a people-centered uh, establishment where uh, they have dues that you have to pay to be able to be a voting member. Even if you can come to the meetings, you wow. can't vote unless you pay dues to the, to, the, to, to the association. And then from there, that excludes the, that excludes the amount of people that can wow. actually vote and actually have their voices heard, etc. And um, even if the dues are, are small, right? If, it, if you're talking about a community that has low income, a low-income community, dues of ten fifteen dollars can be too high for somebody that 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 for certain people and, and if you're making a true democratic process there shouldn't be any kind of dues to be able to make that decision right yeah. it's like a poll tax in, in some kinds of ways yeah absolutely and i'm so glad you brought that up because we see traditionally that mostly historical communities or historic communities rather communities with a legacy are most vulnerable to these types of decisions. So I'm a student at Morehouse, um, which is located in the Southwest part of Atlanta. And my fear is that when I come back for homecoming per se in 20 years, I won't be able to recognize the place. And that's scary. That's a scary position to be in because there are memories made. There's a legacy here. There's so much rich history here. And I feel like gentrification strips that legacy, that history away. So could you give the listeners uh, a brief definition of the difference between gentrification um, and remodeling or beautifying without kicking people out? And what would be your solution to remodeling, beautifying um, a community without displacing uh, those who live in that community? 
Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that uh, it's, it's a lot of different things that you can do to, to ways to answer that question. One, I think at the core is that the, the difference between gentrification and reunification, gentrification and these other things is that gentrification is a plan. Like, I want to emphasize that it's a planned out process that is specifically meant from the very beginning of changing the demographics of an area right yeah. um i don't want i i, I don't want I, I don't like to let 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 people think of them as even in the same realm because it's completely different because gentrification has this root cause at the very beginning of decades of planning decades decades of partnerships with investors um from oftentimes outside of the city sometimes even outside of the country to be able to um you know invest in the city to be able to make profit and to be able to change the demographics of the city oftentimes in the benefit of those investors but also um, the city council and local government officials mm. um, so I think at its root cause is very different um, and so as far as like um, different types of solutions I think that yes everybody wants to be able to feel safe in their neighborhoods everybody wants to see their neighborhoods be able to flourish and to be able to improve right? right but i think that uh at the at the root cause of it if, if any of the decisions that you're making are going to be raising property taxes for people that cannot afford them if they're going to be um raising having rents being raised so that people can't afford them won't know can no longer afford them those are all a lot of the symptoms of gentrification gotcha as opposed to re uh you know beautification of neighborhoods also, like some specific tactics that can be used um, in neighborhoods that have already been planned for gentrification. I think the number one thing uh, is about organization, right? Um, there are several different types of there's, there's definitely different there's several different types of power, right? There's money power, which is one of the things that's at the root cause of gentrification, and foreign investors, investors, local investors. Uh, putting in their dollars to be able to make a neighborhood, to be able to change it for their own interests, right? So money has power, right? We have to be real about that. Yeah. There's political power as well. Political power, however, is supposed to be supposed to be influenced by the third, and, I, and my argument is the biggest and most important power, which is people power, mm. right? Yeah. I think an organized people, an organized group of people, are a group of people that can resist both political power and uh, monetary power to be able to um, make sure that benefits are happening for people at large and not for uh, private interests. And in order to, in order to be able to utilize that people power, um, folks have to know what's going on. Right? That's right. A lot of these decisions end up happening in you know city council meetings, etc. Notes things that most folks probably won't pay attention to unless they're actively like looking out for it. And so I think spreading the message, um, using digital organizing tools to spread the message, but also um, there are several groups, like for example, if somebody's listening from Atlanta, there are several groups already in Atlanta doing work around this, right? So you can join those groups. Um, there's there's um, groups like all over the country as well. If you're in Oakland, if you're in New York, um, or even if you're in a smaller city, um, you can organize your people, organize your neighborhood, even if there is not already like a formal group around it. I think there's power also in just talking with your neighbors and understanding, you know, how they feel about what's going on in the neighborhood, how they feel about certain things. Like in one of my old neighborhoods, I hadn't realized that I was like overplaying for power until I started talking with my neighbors 
about you know how much it used to be etc and like really digging into that and like think about ways that like make like thinking about like the ways in which um we're being exploited without even like knowing sometimes because sometimes we're so used to it right and think that it's a norm mm-hmm. um but yeah those are like some more concrete things that we could do and to piggyback off of that too like sure. when we're organizing right we're not organizing just because we want to you know, have relationships with our neighbors, which is great. We should. <laughs> we should be friendly with our neighbors. Absolutely. But also, like, is organizing because with that power, with that unity, we can start doing things. Like, we can start forming these uh, cooperative-run land trusts, for example, which is a proven method for being able to stabilize housing prices, um, ensure that, and, to, and a proven way to be able to slow down at the very least and stop gentrification in the long term if they are um, implemented correctly. Right. But again, those land trusts have to be run by the community in a democratically in a democratic fashion or else it's just another private outside interest running those land trusts to make sure that uh, that can be for any type of purpose. Right. So that's uh, like land trusts is like you're asking for specific concrete methods and mechanisms that can be used to be able to stop and slow down gentrification. Um, Land trust is one of those mechanisms. But again, those have to be powered by organizing and have to be democratically run. And another thing that we're doing in um, the Pittsburgh neighborhood is like while we're fighting like the long haul of stopping gentrification, um, there are also like very immediate needs that um, need to be taken care of. Like for example, people are still going to have their power bills, they're going to still have, you know, their gas bills, they're still going to have mortgages. And like the average American person, I forgot which poll it was from, like doesn't have $500 in their savings, right? And especially when you look at neighborhoods where people are like even more impoverished, um, like sometimes paying even the light bill is like something that's very difficult. And so therefore being able to have that resources while working towards the greater the greater goal of stopping the entire gentrification process and like keeping um, black families in place and like a building self-sufficiency is also something that's important in this fight, right? Yeah. I think what you're specifically referring to is for CMB, uh, we have a stabilization fund um, that we, so CMB has two initiatives right now that we're doing to combat gentrification, right? Two main ones. Um, one is we have a, a petition campaign where uh, that we're, we're knocking on doors actually next weekend, right? Yeah, so we're going to be knocking on doors um, next weekend and the weekend after on Saturday from 11 to 2, um, where we get petitions from neighbor from folks in the neighborhood. Because the thing with city council folk and all elected folks is um, at the end of the day, they can only keep their jobs if their constituents continue to vote for them. That's right. And part of collecting the petitions is to be able to let city council folks know and other folks in elected office know that um, the people in the neighborhood are not um, are not gonna sit around and allow their neighborhoods to be completely gentrified, and that um, they will hold um, lawmakers um, to the things that they talk about, which is a lot of these lawmakers they talk about, you know, protecting black communities. So if you want to protect black communities, you can't be signing closed door deals with um, folks coming in trying to change up the entire economic and um, social makeup of the community. And then, so that's our, well, that's our long-term strategy. On a short, on a short term, we recognize that, while, like Pittsburgh in particular, like it's actively being gentrified, right? Yeah. And there's a foundation that's built, that's bought $22 million worth of land that is actively uh, 
changing that land and, and it's going to lead to gentrification. They already did the exact same thing in Baltimore. They're doing it in Atlanta and Pittsburgh now, right? Uh, the Andy Casey Foundation. Um, that now, and because this is actively happening, we have our long-term strategy, but at the same time, we recognize that there is an immediate need, right? There are people that are right now unable to pay their bills and getting kicked out of their house and being displaced yeah. actively, yeah. right? So the other side of it is it's important to be able to recognize that um, while you're thinking long-term, you have to also think in the immediate, which is why we have a sustainability fund, which is uh, opportunity for folks, for long-term residents within the Pittsburgh neighborhood. They, they can apply for a grant of up to $500 wow. to help pay mortgage, uh, light bill, um, if they need, because uh, sometimes people will, if their things are not up to code, their property's not up to code, mm-hmm. they can be evict- or evicted or kicked out of their homes, wow. out of their mortgage for not having, excuse me, renovations up to code and if they can't afford those renovations that's another way of being able to of being displaced right so this this grant is um is up to 500 dollars of being able to pay any of those issues um and um and also some i want to emphasize that it's a grant and it's not a loan right yeah. so this is something that you don't have to pay back it's as if it's like a gift yeah so um finding those two battles right the long term uh more structural change but also at the same time recognizing there's immediate needs to be able to be met. Can that grant be given to someone who is not on, I guess, the deed of the house? Um, Because I know that predatory lending is also an issue. So there are far too many instances where um, someone in in the community, someone who has the family home dies and the family, um, someone who's on the deed is expected to pay the mortgage if it hasn't already been paid off. Is can they can someone who is a part of the family apply for that grant so that they can keep the family home? Um, because that's been something that Black people have prided themselves on for many years since we have been able to to get up off the ground. Um, it's the family home that's always been a centerpiece and a safe haven. So for those families who want to keep that safe haven, can they apply for that grant as well? Or is what are the parameters or the requirements for it? You don't have to own the home that you're in to receive the grant. Um, The grant is simply to help keep the folks in the neighborhood in the neighborhood and be able to help them um, for their short-term needs. So we don't look into, um, at least, (laughs) uh, we don't look into like the deeds, et cetera. Cause like there are also people in the neighborhood who have to rent their homes. Like not everybody there is like a homeowner. as Absolutely. well and so um but yeah we're, we don't look into that nitty-gritty cool. um stuff because the goal is to sustain um the people that are there that's right and so i guess that leads to the next question what advice would you both give to community members who are faced with pressuring investors trying to buy their homes for x amount of money or x amount of dollars um, what advice would you give them um, when handling those situations? So, I think Sloma had more she wanted to say about this, but for the, on the offside, I just want to say that a lot of those uh, loans, a lot of those like uh, buy your house for cheap or sell your home for cheap, but we, we buy ugly houses. I don't know about that one in particular, but a lot of those types of things that you see in neighborhoods that are being gentrified are actually illegal. Right, mm-hmm. they are uh, so. Wow, I people don't that. people don't know that. Yeah, and they think that oh, I can get this uh, this real quick fix, right, to be able to sell my house, 
somebody else to get this, this this cash really quickly. But a lot of those those organizations are illegal, and so there can be retribution brought on onto them for doing those that predatory lending and, and some of those those signs. So I want to emphasize that first because that's a common misnomer that folk, a lot of folks think I didn't know. Yes, and so I started started digging into this work a little bit more. Yeah, and I think another key piece of that is like. Um, organizing like themselves like because um usually in a neighborhood where one neighbor gets you know gets like these um like it's that harassment um another neighbor also like has that so organizing themselves um to end real estate speculation is um another thing um which goes back to what i said earlier about the importance of like really joining forces with groups that are already doing the work and if there's not a group already doing the work like connect with a connect with um, a similar group, even if it's in a, a different city and like form, like organize your people um, and build power in that way. Cause at the end of the day, like Jamal mentioned earlier, like people power trumps um, political power, like people power, like um, is what helps political power actually like make sense. Mm-hmm. And it also like, um, it's way more powerful um, and exceeds, I guess like the, exploitation that we could face because when we all when like an entire neighborhood is standing up to the harassment then like it's harder to beat that than if like one or two people um are doing it in silos that's right so does community movement builders have like a lobbying leg where you go to i guess different political offices whether it be state reps state senators city council meetings things of that nature i know you mentioned going to different meetings like on behalf of communities, but is there, how is the, the organization split up? Is there an advocacy? Is there an organizing leg? Is there a fundraising leg? How, tell us a little bit more about the organization and how it's broken up to tackle this, um, what can seem overbearing issue of gentrification. Yeah, definitely. So we don't um, formally lobby at all. Um, what we do is we, um, we do have an organizing leg, um, which organizes the anti-gentrification work, but also like organizes the community at large. Um, we also do, um, we have part of creating a sustainable community too, is um, we have a community garden where we grow foods. We also have um, so several cooperatives that we're about to start. Um, some of them have already begun, but like cooperatives to like help with economic sustainability within the community. And the entire goal of community movement builders at the end of the day is to um, is for black liberation, right? Um, we're a group that's there for black liberation. And we're also, we have several chapters throughout the country and um, oh, wow. it's, and in Atlanta particularly, our focus is on gentrification because that's, you know, that's like- pressing. That's an immediate need that's happening here. And that's like, um, that's preventing us from black liberation here in Atlanta. And so different cities have different focal points um, that they focus on. I think to add on to that as well, um, part of the reason why I think it it makes sense for community builders to fill a, a space that's not already there within the space, specifically for gentrification, is that there are groups like Housing Justice uh, League and and others that are focusing more so on the lobbying side. However, what, the thing that they are, I don't want to say is a weakness of theirs, but a thing that we are particularly adept at doing because we are based in the community. Our, our location is in Pittsburgh. Like we have members of the organization that live in the neighborhood as well. Um, uh, we have been able to, and we have, we have been able to 
have a presence in the community such that we are the ones knocking on the doors. We're the ones that, we're the ones that are actually talking to folks in the neighborhood, forming those relationships with folks in the neighborhood, uh, distributing yard signs that are visible within the neighborhood so that uh, people are aware on the grassroots level of what's going on uh, with gentrification as far as information, but then also as to steps that they can be done. For example, we had a anti-gentrification forum a couple months ago that was um, that included uh, folks that were in those rooms that in the real estate at the very beginning to explain the issue of gentrification. We also had uh, Housing Justice League coming in to be able to dis- discuss the policy ways that they are yeah. fighting gentrification. Okay. And we, what we brought to it was that we organized the event, right? We, uh, we, we knocked on the doors, we got folks out, and were able to bring the bring bring this event um, like into the community and have those conversations so that folks um, can be more organized and be able to help help fight this little better. And I think another part of that, particularly, is um, especially with Pittsburgh, because Pittsburgh is a historically black neighborhood. Yeah. And I think also having the historical piece of it um, is important, which is something that we bring forth, um, like political education, and also like making sure that we're grounded and understand the history of you know, the community, um, and also where we can go from there. And so there's folks that, you know, that are in these meetings and, um, at our events who grew up in the neighborhood, like folks that, you know, they have generations that have been in the neighborhood. Um, so it's not like this thing of like random people coming in and, um, doing it in silos as opposed to like, um, in concert with folks that are already there. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention at this point that so community movement builders with a lot of this anti-gentrification work that we're doing, we're partnered with the Pittsburgh Collaborative, which is an organization uh, that is consists of long-term residents um, within the neighborhood, uh, local business owners within the neighborhood, um, and uh, are rooted in Pittsburgh um, for generations, right? I haven't been in, in Pittsburgh for generations. And so, um, like, we're doing this, like, for a petition that we, the petition campaign that we started, we uh, didn't develop that just based off of what CMB thought was going to be important for the neighborhood, but we uh, worked with the Pittsburgh Collaborative and coming up with these ideals and coming up with these uh, things that we, that we all thought would be, uh, you know, in the, in the benefit of the community. And even as we're knocking on doors, we're consistently asking folks, like, what things they need. Like, sometimes folks give us, like, grocery lists or um, just, like, for for example, folks are saying, hey, our, like, our garbage needs to be picked up. Like, things that, like, certain things, some things that we could take care of immediately and other things that we need, you know, the city, um, we need to check the city on um, in terms of being, making sure the neighborhood's being taken care of and folks can actually live safe, sustainable lives. Yes, I love it. I love it. So we're wrapping up, but I do have one final question. This is the year 2020. It's a big year um, because of the presidential election. So do you believe that there is one particular candidate that is speaking to the issue of gentrification? If so, who um, and if not any, why do you think that is? Um, I haven't particularly seen candidates explicitly talk about gentrification. Um, but I think like as we're talking about gentrification and as we're talking about 2020, right, there's so much focus on 
um, presidential election, which is like a very important election. Um, I think something else to remember too is like these these um, decisions that get made um, in terms of gentrification, they happen sometimes on the local most level, right? Yeah. So as we're thinking about presidential elections, it's also important to con- th- to start thinking about like other elections that are coming up, like state legislative races are also happening this year. Absolutely. Um, and like there's, sep- there's a plethora of um, other races that are also important to think about. Um, but I think also like on the presidential level, like, um, I th- sometimes like gentrification for them may be hard to talk about because it may not seem palatable because um, at the end of the day, um, so many of them and so many of their campaigns are also very much funded by these same types of large groups that come in yeah. and destroy black neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of that. Just <laughs> like, <laughs> for example, there's, I, I have little faith in, uh, like a presidential candidate being coming up down very strong hand on being able to prevent gentrification because at the end of the day, we live in a capitalistic society, right? What that means is that uh, the president and um, the government's role is to, in a lot of ways, protect private interests because Mm -hmm. in a capitalistic society, the wealth of a a country is, is run by private interests. Uh, that's why when you think of the, the rate, the, how we measure uh, the successfulness of a country is GDP. GDP is not an indicator of the wealth of, of the citizens of the country. It's a measure of the ownership of the people that own the, the capital, the people that own the major companies, right. how much they're profiting, right? So even when we think about those types of things, so that's, and that's like the report card of like a president, right? And so their interests are directly tied to... Um, necessarily private interest whether or not you know it could be whoever the candidate is we're we're a 501c3 organization so we're not going to endorse any particular candidate sure. but whatever the candidate is their 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 interests are tied to private private interests right and so because of that um i think that's the reason why the grassroots organizing level is so important to be able to focus on making them by way of our people power, our vote, et cetera, and not even just voting, but our other outside civic engagement, outside demands that, um, you know, our interests are being taken care of. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I definitely learned a lot. This was some invaluable, awesome, great information. Definitely. I want you guys, Jamal, uh, let the people know where they can find you as well as Salome. Uh, Let them know where they can find you on socials and uh, on the internet, so. Um, sure, so um, first I wanted to say, you can follow uh, Community Movement Builders at Community Movement Builders on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, we have a pretty active presence on both of those platforms. Um, if you wanna follow me as well, I post political things as well as just other living life things. <laughs> uh, <but> my, my, <laughs> my, my IG is at Malcolm uh, so feel free to follow me on there as well. Yeah, um, emphasis. Follow Community Movement Builders on Facebook. Follow Community Movement Builders yes. on Instagram. And then Community MVT on Twitter as well. Um, and then my personal Instagram is 20 underscore something. Um, 20 underscore something. S-O-M-E-T-I-N-G. Um, but yeah, you can follow. 
Awesome. Awesome. Good stuff. Thank you guys again so much for your time. I wish you much success in your efforts and hopefully some of our listeners will be inspired to join the movement and become active in anti-gentrification efforts. Jamal and Salome dropped some heavy knowledge on us today about gentrification and housing inequality. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at IamRJordan for more information about podcast episodes and their air dates. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. See you next time on Poppin' Policies with R. Jordan Davis.